Welcome to the Bilge Pumps, where a bunch of naval geeks spout off. Hello everyone, and well, okay, we've got a lot of stuff to discuss about on Bilge Pumps today. It's going to be myself and DrakNFL, so hello, hello everyone. We're going to start off with discussing something YouTube related because I think it's important in that it affects how information is getting out there. And it's important to remember this happens because all these companies are private companies. They have their own performance metrics and their own things. And there have been quite a lot of content creators coming out recently and explaining to people that they are dealing with suppression for want of a better word, on the algorithm. They don't seem to be getting as many views. Now, I myself have noticed this, but I'm small fry. Drac NFL has noticed this far more and can probably discuss it in far greater depth. But the point is this. It's always a case in life. You should always trust, but verify. And... If you think your favorite content creator hasn't produced a video because you haven't seen it come up in front of you in a couple of weeks, it might be worthwhile moseying over to their page and checking if they have or haven't. Because it's very rare in my experience that people have actually have done it. It's also, I would suggest, very rare if you, if you myself, I would say, check you're still subscribed to that content creator because it's amazing the other day i found that i'd unsubscribed somehow from dracinfl's channel which i found very interesting because i've been subscribed to it for ages and have watched lots of the videos and listen to at least two videos a week as a rule because and this is going to sound very egotistical, but every Sunday he produces these things called a dry dock, which are these wonderful long videos answering many, many questions. The thing is, every Sunday I also do a live, and the amount of times people come out of his dry dock and have questions for me in the live, it tends to be sensible for me to have listened to the dry dock, so I know what Drac has actually said, than necessarily what someone thinks he might have said before mm -hmm. I have to answer the questions. So I know it can't, it's not, I am not not listening to your videos because I know I'm listening to your videos. I always do the five minute guide. I always do the dry dock. And I usually listen to a, a, a videos during the week while I'm writing. If I'm not listening to your videos, it's because I'm listening to other people's or recording my own etc. It's usually what I have going in the background while I'm working, while I'm writing. So they, there's not even that thing of, oh, you can't, it's automatically unsubscribed you because you haven't listened to them in such a while. So I don't know what's going on. I'm sure things will get sorted out at some point. But please, if you don't think you've heard from your content creator, your favourite content creators, your favourite historians, your favourite people in a while, Go hunt them down and see if they haven't been producing, because they probably have. And especially, I will say this, because Drac won't. USS Constitution video he's done. Spectacular. Do not know 
why it has got such a low number of views. I would be expecting myself a video like that to have come out when it's done to have been viewed by pretty much, well, the entire population of Texas for starters, but quite a large percentage of the United States as a whole. And I'm please note, I'm basing that remark on Texas through having several Texas cousins who uh, would 100% sampling that will have gone and watched that video. I know they've gone and watched that video because I told them about it and they have all gone and watched it. So in my view, therefore, 100% of Texans as 100% of my sample will watch that video. I don't know. But what do yeah. you think? Well, I mean, it's. I do find it very interesting that within 24 to 48 hours of these various videos being released over the weekend and beginning part of the week, um, about YouTube apparent seeming to suppress military history content creators, um, suddenly the amount of views on that Constitution video skyrocketed. Because let's face it, um, when you, when you upload a video on YouTube, you would expect that you're going to get the at least half, if not the majority of all views that video is ever going to receive. Uh, if it's an, a normal video within probably the first four to seven days yeah. um it, it and then it kind of will tail off if it's got long burn then great you might add, gradually add up lots more but there's always going to be that big spike at the beginning but even for videos that attain a, a very high viewership the line is just slightly steeper and gradually climbs um Whereas I say within 24 to 48 hours of these various content creators putting out videos pointing out that, you know, their view counts are down. And I know from I know from a bunch of other military, military, military history and history based content creators that I've spoken to who haven't made their own videos or haven't made them yet on the subject. They've all seen in, and myself all seen view counts dropping suddenly and mysteriously over the past four to six weeks. Um or so, despite, you know, not, there's, in theory, no reason for this to happen. Um, you always expect a drop in, in January um, of drop-in viewers. And obviously the last two years or so have been a bit of an anomaly with people in lockdown. But when you look at um, previous summers, the thing is now that schools are out and more people are at home, theoretically they have more watch time which means that in summer, the views usually go up. Uh, views usually go down slightly in May, June, because people have exams, but then as they get released from exams and so forth, uh, and you get the summer holidays, yeah, sure, some people go on holiday, but generally more people are at home and uh, view counts tend to go up. But instead, for, as a military, military history and history content creators, um, all of their views have gone down which makes no sense, except for the fact that within, uh, say, within a uh, within a very short amount of time after this, the first few videos coming out pointing this out, uh, mysteriously and suddenly, various videos began to receive a spike in viewership. The Constitution video received 50% of its total viewership in the space of 48 hours in, okay. in as of the time of recording of this, uh, the I last 48 hours, which is unprecedented for a YouTube this. video. 
I can have my own example. I can add this because you know, every Sunday I produce a sixty-second short video. You know, YouTube short. Mm -hmm. I do some questions and no history stuff. And I've just done that because I got I, I enjoyed watching it occasionally when I was flicking through things. I noticed no one was doing naval history on it, so I thought, well, I'll do it. See if I can do sixty seconds because I can't do five minutes because I'm useless at that. I've got, besides, I've got a friend who does it far too well for me. So, you know, why should I do it? You know, you don't have a dog and bark yourself. Well, maybe with my dogs, but, you know, most people don't have a dog and bark themselves. So I thought I'd do the 60 second short. Here's the thing. Um, so if you were going to think about which would be the most popular 60 seconds, would it be why are Russian aircraft carriers called heavy aviation cruisers or not a wooden wall? The age of sail was a rope coil. Which do you think would be higher in terms of numbers of views? Given current circumstances, the one on Russia. You're right. How much higher, though? It depends. I mean, a lot of the stuff to do with the current Russia-Ukraine war goes viral. But even assuming that it didn't, you'd expect it probably to be three to five times as popular. There's the interesting thing. So, the Not A Wooden Wall got 443 views. And by the way, the 60-second shorts just keep going. People can click into them at any point. This is what I find fun about them. Mm -hmm. So you can be watching one from years ago. The Russian aircraft carriers, I would expect that to go really quite high. Okay? That came out Sunday morning, just before things seem to start to change only a thousand views and you'd expect it to do a bit more than that it is kind of topical i mm. had chosen it for i had chosen it for that reason to be a bit clickbaity but why are we talking about this why is this relevant to bilge pumps why are we not going from well the reason we're talking about it is because you have issues going on now with the tele Daily Telegraph and the Daily Mail in the UK, both produced interesting carrier papers, uh, carrier articles, where frankly they should have called a guy called Jamie Seidel and asked him to write an aircraft carrier article if they wanted someone to write an aircraft carrier article, because the Daily Mail one seems to think that because you launch a ship off the slipway without its radar and missiles fitted that you don't aren't going to arm it or fit radar onto it. And the Daily Telegraph wants to refight the Catabar versus ski ramp battle from years a decade from years ago, when that's not going to win, and there's no point going there. In fact, the battle now should be over replacements for Albion and Bulwark. And both of them are not the well, most well written articles in the world, and not the and the most well sort of definitely not the most well researched or resourced articles in the world. So you have this, you have the fact that the main, uh, the, and I don't want to use that phrase, the, can I use the phrase traditional media without sounding like I'm some sort of right-wing demagogue? Mm, yeah. Can, can I use the phrase, so I'm going to say the traditional media are not living up to their traditional standards of quality research. They had standards Although, of quality research? It's news to uh, me. I was talking about, I was talking about the Telegraph here, not Daily Mail. I was, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I was including them. Uh, and the non-traditional media is being actively 
refocused mm. and this is going to cause trouble because in the nicest way and i say this with a loving heart and from a loving place you cannot have a proper debate about defense and security uh, debate about national spending about any of these things without having a fully informed or as much as it can be informed electorate and you're not going to get an informed electorate if the sources of information the reputable ones are being are just not getting their circulation and you the ones which are supposedly reputable are not doing their job it's just it's not going to happen and i do not like sounding like i am one of those particular people who spends their entire time bashing the media there are many areas where i find those people slightly strange but in defense sadly they often have seem to have a case if people are actually and i find this actually mitigating against warship videos let's be honest i can possibly understand how youtube could get overactive and worried about guns and swords and individual weapons with what's been going on recently in the news i could understand that to an extent but what do they think people are gonna do go and build a replica hms war spite and use it to start i don't know a one person revolution Okay, Drac might actually achieve that, but he's a very, very small group of people who actually have the engineering knowledge and skill plus the desire to build Warspike that might actually bring it together and build it. And his grin now suggests he might actually do this. There aren't going to be that many people. Most people are just going to enjoy the videos and hopefully learn something. Hopefully. Yeah, well... I think the, I think the, I think fundamentally the problem is, well, I have a much less sympathetic view of the media as a whole than you do. I think. Um, I have friends who work in it and who I try and give the benefit of the doubt because I went to school with them. Yeah, but, the, the yeah. media, media, media has a, a, a occupies about the same level of sarcastic dismissal in my view as most politicians do um because i i tend to follow the fairly simple rule that i find quite useful and was introduced to me quite some time ago which is that in order to evaluate the reliability of a particular source of media don't bother trying to find out whether they're right wrong or somewhere in between on emotive subjects or subjects that you have mm -hmm. a particularly strong interest in Look at what they write about subjects that you actually know about. And by know about, I mean not I'm a member of 16 Facebook groups that all talk about the same thing or whatever. That's called an echo chamber. I mean things that are stuff that you can actually legitimately point to a genuine expertise in. So in my case, that would be mostly engineering, um, particularly civil and highway engineering. And then secondarily, because uh, that's also my professional qualifications, uh, secondarily, um, history, because that's a, a big interest of mine. And, well, the channel kind of speaks mm. for itself as to uh, my level of understanding for that area of things, but, but obviously particularly naval history. Um, and then tertiary, there's a swathe of, 
of other issues which i i know a fair bit about through extensive research and or lived experience whether that be you know bolivia or you know all, all sorts of a few other bits and pieces now when i look at media sources i go okay right they say look at the stuff that you know about see what the media has written or recorded or broadcast or whatever form it takes about that compare how accurate they are about that to what you know to actually be the facts and if they get that consistently wrong or hilariously wrong or are clearly biased then why should you trust them about anything else that you don't know so much about because if they get it consistently wrong and stuff you do know do know things about the chances are they're probably also wrong about everything else or they're trying to twist your particular perspective one way or the other and thus far when it comes to mainstream media um i have yet to find any mainstream that's quote-unquote traditional media outlet that actually has passed that requirement whether it be newspapers broadcasters radio etc etc um they routinely and consistently either a get things horrifically wrong or b the bias and in the level of bias and bit and often vitriol in their reporting uh, both directly and by omission is usually so hilariously bad i just go right okay you are obviously either ignorant lying or trying to manipulate people and if you're doing as i said if you're doing that on stuff i already know the answers on why on earth am i going to trust you on anything i don't know the answers for <laughs> and this might explain why well why me and drakenfell um tend not to watch much of the news yeah yeah it's 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 basically a case of i just flat out don't trust them i don't trust them i don't trust the politicians um to a certain degree they're all in it together <laughs> uh to coin a phrase of what how many of a bit many prime ministers ago that that particular one was but um yeah they're in it together we're not in it with them mm. so yeah oh well uh, and and they they obviously also have their own protectionist agendas, which you you see repeatedly come up in in various things because that you know, they when you have alternate sources of media um, now obviously when you have alternate sources of media, if anyone can create their own media distribution, whether that be a blog or a YouTube channel or a Twitch channel or Twitter account or whatever obviously no regulation and little accountability can make for a lot of very dodgy sources um yep. but it can also mean you get sources that are relatively unbiased and hopefully actually somewhat well informed about what they're talking about especially because when they it's focus on the specialist those needles in the haystack yes. because there's often a lot of people who create stuff just to jump on the bandwagon yeah. The moment something becomes important or just look at the trending. number of youtube channels that have suddenly popped up in the last few months all suddenly mysteriously experts on um Ukraine Russian and strategy yeah it's uh, it's amazing i mean you know it, when you look when you look at the the general social media trends you know 
two or three years ago, everybody had mysteriously suddenly become an expert on um, pathological diseases. And then six months, six months to a year after that, everyone had magically become an expert on the ins and outs of uh, how vaccines worked. And then what a a year or so after that, everyone had magically become an expert on crowd mechanics. And then everyone was magically an expert on climate. And now everybody is (laughs) magically an expert on Russia and and Ukraine. So track you haven't lived till someone is quoting at you. In a video, I'm not going to name the channel, I'm not going to say, this person is wrong, and I'm basing this analysis based on a paper written by Larkin et al. And they haven't checked who the list of the authors are in the paper and the actual author they're quoting when they're talking about this, because they'd have found out in the et al. was Clark. Mm. So they're trying to disprove me by quoting me at me. Now, admittedly, that is a great source. I have to admit, I am a (laughs) wonderful source. But the problem is they are misquoting what I was saying, and I know they're misquoting because I know what sentence they've kicked out of the quote. Mm-hmm. And you, well, you get this happen. You thing is, you get this happening in both, just yeah, people who are a little bit subpar in their comprehension skills. Because I've had the same thing. I've before I decided it was too much, too much like hard work. Um, when you occasionally get into internet arguments with people on social media and like, you know, NFL has said this, this, and this. And I'm sitting there going, no, he didn't. Yes, he did. He said this and this. And I'm like, I am Drakinafel. I'm pretty sure I know what I said. I mean, I've got the video. I've got the script. I've got the research notes. And I am 99.999% sure. I did not, in fact, say what you say I said. Um, you know, it's almost the Princess Bride. You know, that word you're using, I do not think it means what you think it means. <laughs> but um, that, yeah. And then eventually, eventually, you only could argue with so many of those people if you throw hands up and go, look, if you live uh, clearly from a parallel universe where you know evil drac who was dropped 16 times down the stairs as a kid is is hosting a channel that somehow people are listening to Uh, i'm not i'm not getting involved in that anymore so yeah but but in a more serious note you also get the problem is if you have people who have a consistent track record of actually vaguely knowing what they're talking about on something and they disagree with the current media narrative on whatever that thing is, um, you suddenly discover the traditional media who, for some reason, some people, mostly the politicians that they pay off, um, seem to think are still relevant, um, suddenly pop up with hit pieces on them, uh, which are, again, hilariously and stupidly biased. Um, To be fair, I've watched this. There's been a classic example of this happening in the recent UK press and that Penny Mordaunt, one of the Conservative candidates mm-hmm. for leader party, who is a Royal Navy reservist, who I know from people who've worked with her, is an absolutely amazing R&R reservist, has done a lot of work and has actually turned down posts because she's been focusing on her R&R training at the time, so it didn't fit with her taking posts. I know that. The amount of people who came out with variations of, and the only reason I'm bringing this up because we don't bring up politicians, the only, who brought up with things of, oh, she's a woman, so she's only a captain because of special measures, or it's an honorary post, she's not a real reservist, or this, because she couldn't be because she was a woman. And I was sitting there going, A, you're just doing that, you're supposed to be better informed than that because you're supposed to be the proper traditional media. And B, I thought you didn't espouse these attitudes anymore. I don't espouse them. I would never presume someone 
because they're a woman is not an officer or not something. Because, believe it or not, especially in the field she's in, she's a submarine warfare specialist. She's one of the people who talks and communicates and controls submarines. That's the area she focuses on. You don't need to be a big hulk to do that job. Well, that does kind That's of. That's not exactly the job that requires big hulking men like you and I who can lift our own body weight. And even there are some girls who can do that. So they're very rare and few and far between. That, that, that does bring up time. bring up the rather amusing thought of uh, for those you listeners who may not be paying too much attention to UK politics at the moment, uh, we're currently basically uh, in between prime ministers. Um, and Penny Morden was in the running. She as of came time third. of recording, has just been knocked out of the running. So came third out. Uh, and now there's she a came second in pretty much every vote, barring the last one yeah. when she became but third. She it, 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 does, it does. If she had continued to be in the running and theoretically potentially had won, it does lead to the rather interesting um, thought that as a an R&R officer, if under her watch, we'd ended up going to war, and that war had in it involved a significant naval aspect, you might actually have ended up with the Prime Minister being called up to serve in the war that she got us into, which, I mean, I'm not necessarily opposed to the idea. Uh, let, let's put it this way, she'd have gone. She was, yeah, but um, in, in terms of media hit pieces, one mm. of the other other ones that pops up, up into my mind very easily is um, Jorg Sprava, which I know you also watch, yeah. uh, aka the Slingshot Channel. Um, and a few years ago, Back a few years ago, he had um, none other than the Daily Mail going after him in a number of number of oh. issues. I mean, you know that wonderful um, black shirt, sort of goose stepping, supporting publication. Um, oh, probably uh, has a very very careful. People get very touchy when you start talking about fascists. I know on my channel mm. there are many people trying to explain to me that Nazis were not fascists. Well, a fairly sure Oswald Molesley was one, and they supported yes. him. Yeah. Plus, also, um, also, according to the Daily Mail, everything gives you cancer. We have, we must also remember that. Um, but yeah, so poor old Jorg, um, perfectly lovely chap, makes very interesting yeah. videos. But yeah, very they went nice. on. He's they went on a watch. campaign against him for quite a while. Um, they, well, he's foreign and he knows how to use a weapon, so he's got two up on them. Mm, well, fortunately for him, and unfortunately for them, he kind of took the fight back to them and exposed what they were doing but um if his channel hadn't been as large as it was at the time or if he hadn't had the kind of you know, you know stuff them i'm going to show exactly who they are attitude who knows what could have happened to him um to be and, fair i think they're lucky he went for that way because if he'd opened up his very impressive collection of weaponry and arsenal he could have done some serious damage to them quite quickly yeah i mean to be fair they didn't accuse slingshots of giving people cancer so they're, they're, that was a step up in their reporting yeah Actually, are you sure they didn't? Didn't they? Didn't they at one point link it to various forms of muscle tension, which could induce various issues in your muscles, which could lead to cancer? Oh, shockingly enough, I'm not a regular Daily Mail reader. So no, I just remembered the article because my mum picked it up because my mum watches his channel as well because he's such mm. a nice guy. For those who don't know, give backstory on my mum. When she was in Lloyd's Register, and just before she actually ended up becoming pregnant with my sister. She was on the Lloyd's Register shooting team. She was looking to what possibly go to the Olympic shooting team. She's a crack shot. She's who taught me to shoot. She taught the whole family to shoot. Uh, other than my grandfather, who also taught well taught her and also partially taught me along with her. So 
really, really interested in shooting. Doesn't allow guns now at her home. Doesn't really like that now because it upsets the neighbours so much and she just gets fed up with the phone calls. She's reached that age in her life where she just gets fed up with the phone calls. But, although occasionally me and Drac might do that to wind up our next door neighbour. We'll leave that to one side. Um, But she likes his channel. She watches his channel. And so she ended up at one point getting into, you know that thing I tell you, Drac, not to do, which is get into a social media fight because there's no point in having a comment battle with people on Facebook. You can never win against stupid. For starters, they'll drag you down to their level where they have an advantage. Mm. She got into a comment fight with people over him on the Daily Mail website. Well, I can feel the IQ points dropping by proxy. <laughs> I ended up having to take her out of the house and ban her from using electronic devices for a week. <laughs> I was like, going, mm. you are turning me into granddad now. <laughs> oh, I don't know. Anyway, no. shall we talk about something that's actually vaguely well, naval related? We will do. But the reason that was all naval related, as I said, was sources. Go mm-hmm. looking for the information. Now, we have a lot of fun things going on today. We have um, specifically going on at the moment, Chinese naval infantry in tanks are being deployed to protect banks, which have told people that their savings are not actually savings, but investments. Um, We have an Indian aircraft carrier, specifically their Russian aircraft carrier, on fire. The Vikram Madhya has Mm -hmm. had a fire and a surprise car. We have, we're not going to get into Daily Mail's actual aircraft carrier piece, but that was frankly terrible. Uh, We have people talking about nuclear-powered torpedoes again, which can go at over 30 knots for 200 hours before dumping the reactor into the seabed. Yeah, Um, that's going to do the sea life plenty of good. That's going to do everyone so much good. And um, yes, we are having a lot of interesting articles going out there. We have HMS Argus is going to apparently, well, RFA Argus is going to be to become the new literal strike ship. Apparently, that's the idea. They're going to take a very old hull, which was old even when it was procured by the Royal Navy, and are going to turn it into the centerpiece of the new modern literal strike group. And there are going to be British submarines based out of Perth. Now, I'm presuming they're going to be T-class boats sent to Australia for Australian sailors to man. Because I doubt we can send A-class because we're kind of short on them. Mm. Well, that'd be good training to wander around the Western Pacific. So let's pick, I mean, let's pick up on one that we can cover fairly quickly first. So the um, Vikram Medici, the converted Kiev class with the little fire on board. So fortunately, as of current reporting, as of recently, doesn't seem to have been any casualties. And Mm -hmm. the official statement says this will happen while the ship was at sea. Uh, Fire was brought under control by the warship's crew during firefighting system, using their firefighting systems to say no casualties reported and a board of inquiry has been convened. So, well, and this comes from the actual spokesperson of the Indian Navy. You can yes. actually follow them on Twitter. They're usually fairly nice and actually tend to reply and be polite when you send them questions. 
which might be why me and Drag and Jamie apparently have a standing invitation from the Indian Navy or the Bilt uh, to Biltrum's crew if ever we're in India to go see their ships. So yeah, I mean, I suppose on the one hand, it's good that this is a a fire that has been contained without anybody getting hurt. So that's always good. Um, fires at sea are never pleasant, <laughs> no matter how, how big they are. And to be fair, um, a fire breaking out aboard a warship, whilst not a fortunately not a common occurrence, is also nowhere near as uncommon as you might otherwise think. You know, you'd think it should be very, very uncommon. And um, yeah, well, it, it should be. But there's an awful lot of things on a warship that can burn. And there's only so many hours in the day. There's a lot of things that can overheat um, and so forth. And it only takes one small mistake. And that might, mistake might not immediately be evident for quite a while. I mean, it could even be, the, you know, it could be a case of a, a can of paint left in the wrong place and 99 times out of 100 that might be perfectly fine but on the 100th time that that um can of paint may end up in a corridor while the ship is in a very very hot area perhaps during a heat wave which we've been experiencing the past few days um don't that, realize that combine that with maybe all the systems therefore running a bit hotter because um overall temperatures got gone up so passive cooling is not not working quite as well maybe the aircon system starts to break down maybe it goes offline for a few minutes while someone resets something and that might be just enough to make that paint can pop and if it pops that little surge of the cat lid popping off might be just enough for it to spill and it might spill onto something that makes it go whoosh and if uh, you don't believe me well people who've served in the navy will already know this Paint is listed alongside such wonderful things as ammunition in the hierarchy of a ship's fire hazards. Um, if you look at the damage control layout, for example, for USS North Carolina, and in fact, for almost any of the US fast battleships that are still preserved and have that data sheet up there, you'll see the paint store is the only area that's not um, fuel or ammunition, which is highlighted in red as a major fire hazard in the case of battle damage. Um, so, you know, it could be something very simple. It could be something a bit more worrying and complex. We don't know. But I think the larger lesson to learn from this is some, well, not a lesson that most of us should need to know, but apparently some people do need this reinforced, is the fact that if you have one ship, because Vikrant is not yet in service, um, you have one ship doing a particular role, in this case, an aircraft carrier, it's very easy for one small incident to take it out of service. There's not necessarily any indication that Vikram Medici is on her way back into port because of this right now, but she very well could have been. And, uh, well, the Russians have been without a aircraft carrier platform for a while after what happened to Kunetsov. Um, the French are semi-regularly out of carrier options whenever Charles de Gaulle needs maintenance or refueling. So, yeah, having one carrier, not such a good idea if you want a continuous deterrence. Well, it's the case is one carrier is a white elephant, really, I say, in reality. Mm -hmm. Two carriers is uh, fingers crossed. Three carriers is an availability. Four carriers is a capability. 
mm-hmm. because it's the same as with SSBNs. Why do we have four SSBNs? Why does both Britain and France have four? Because if you want to guarantee one at sea, no matter what the likelihood of accidents, etc., you need four vessels. If you want to guarantee one on patrol, one available at sea. If you want to guarantee one usually available to be deployed, well, you need you need roughly three. So this is the problem smaller nations have got into. And there are options, you know. Uh, no, for example, if you do replace Albion and Bulwark and with a Trieste class LHD, mm-hmm. I know that's that that's debated and not debated. The thing is, you would then end up with two if you could persuade an increase in defense budget and wouldn't get three you could then end up with five flight decks all of which can operate the full range of aircraft and three three large well decks that you can use for amphibious operations so usually you would have definitely one well deck available and usually you probably have one flight deck at sea and one flight that more flight deck available no matter how uh, what the chances are, one ship ends up in an accident. The odds of more than one ship ending up in an accident without some outside force getting involved is very slight. It's a potential, but again, if you have those five ships, you can mix around. And if necessary, an LHD, whilst it's not the perfect platform for air defence and strike, like a Queen Elizabeth class, it can carry the F-35Bs, it can carry the same aircraft that air group in terms of types of aircraft, not the same numbers as a Queen of class, and it could be a backstop in the role, so you wouldn't have nothing. You would still have something, some capability. And it's the same with the Queen of class and filling in for the LHD in some of the amphibious aviation, because they're better than nothing. They're not exactly great for that. I know there were plans to convert the Prince of Wales and to make her into a commando carrier. They didn't actually do it in the end, which because they realised that was almost as expensive as trying to convert them into a capabar carrier. And also because someone probably had a realised and thought, hang on, these aircraft carriers are going to be pretty important and you want to put in what are assault, uh, basically assault stairs inside them. Now, if people don't know what assault stairs are, in between your internal assembly spaces on a ship, which is an amphibious warfare ship, you tend to have these staircases, which are kind of special. They are designed for troops to go up and down them in full kit and preferably two at a time up the steps and do so taking the corners, everything in their full kit so that they can move quickly and efficiently around the ship for doing the assault operations and for amusing stuff. Now, if you're in an amphibious ship, you are probably going in and it's probably a, hopefully, whilst not a benign environment, it's hopefully a environment which has been, how would you put it, Drac? Uh, sanitized to an extent? Not Suppressed? Much at yes. A carrier is probably not going to be getting such a suppressed environment. They are going; she's going to be going in, doing the, uh, being part of the force, doing the suppression. The difference is, therefore, she's possibly more likely to get hit. Touch wood, she won't, but more likely she too. So, having that kind of protection makes things easier for her and safer for her. But also not having it would make things a lot more problematic. 
Yeah, and it's, I mean, it's an it's an interesting. The thing is that that that's kind of that brings us on to another thing we're planning on apparently planning on having only the one of. That being a, a literal strike ship. Oh God, please! I was so hoping I managed to avoid that. The Argus mm-hmm. conversation. Yes, that's just again. This is where I get into trouble because people go, well, you know, it's uh, what you're suggesting is far more expensive and there's far more capabilities than you need for that role. And I go, yes. But the thing is, an LHD, Trieste style LHD could do that role very well. Thank you very much. It could also do more if I needed it to. Mm. It could be scaled up and down. You're talking about building something which can just pretty much do that role. Yeah, well, I mean, on the one hand, it means we get to keep Argus for a bit longer because some idiot had um, proposed the idea of, of scrapping the UK's only vaguely vaguely hospital ship-like floating object. Yes, which, which um, is... That, 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 fine, but she was launched originally in 1980. Hmm. So she is uh, older than you and I. Yes, by a significant margin. It would be better to have... In terms of overall naval capability, it's not like they were going to replace her. So it would have just been in case of being down a ship. And this way, at least she gets to stick around. And, well... And um, this is the point. Queen Elizabeth and Prince of Wales... Technically, Queen Elizabeth and Prince of Wales are replacing... In a sphere you were supposed to be replacing service. Invincible, illustrious, Ark Royal, Ocean, and Argus. So we've gone from having five flight decks, of which one was a helicopter, uh, two were sort of helicopterish ships, mm-hmm. to having two. Yeah, well, I mean, it, it, she, she's quite big, so, you know, and if she's going to be a literal strike ship, the fact that she has fairly extensive medical facilities is probably a good thing. Um, of and the she various has candidates. 50 person passenger lifts. Yeah, and of, of the various candidates, it's she's probably one of the better ones. Um, the, I think the at one article point we were talking about you could use an LPD or an LSL for the role. But yeah, yeah, but she she's quite large. I mean, I'm looking. I'm when I'm looking at it, I'm looking at the article discussing it. If you were going to refit her, she does have some space to expand her upper superstructure, and she does have some internal volume spare already. So. Command and control facilities probably quite viable. She will need some extra self-defense capability. Um, quite where that's going to go, I'm not entirely sure, but they'd have to find space somewhere. Um, she obviously doesn't. She can't use landing craft the same way that Albion and Bulwark can. But on the one hand, whilst retaining her and having her be able to fill another role as well as still serving as our pseudo hospital ship is generally welcome news. On the other hand, as the article uh, that in question also points out, it is also an acknowledgement of the fact that um, the Royal Marines are significantly smaller force than they were. Mm-hmm. And as such, um, you know, doing full brigade level deployments with them isn't really possible anymore, at which point having a ship that carries fewer of them and is using them as more of a in an even more targeted and pinpoint way than the Royal Marines already were, 
might not be such a bad idea. I mean, it's good for local local trouble spot firefighting and so forth, and might also be useful for one of the things where we talked about with LPDs and LPHs um, before of kind of a disaster relief vessel. Because I, she's I, got, she's got. You you could stack a lot of containers on that flight deck, and in the definitely. hangar underneath, if you needed to, and she can still carry helicopters. And then that small, relatively small number of marines could become a relatively small number of marines and royal engineers or whatever, i.e., supervision and security force for the relief efforts. I agree with all that, but there's the point that I keep coming back to with the royal marines and all this sort of reduction. At what point do you find yourself... It's the... How do I put it? It's the obsession with special forces and going lighter, faster, more precision. Mm. And you have this obsession crops up every now and again in history. Yes, we can do this all with a lighter, smaller, faster force. Lighter, small... And they bump into something and they get absolutely massacred. And the thing they usually bump into is not exactly that advanced, not exactly that capable. It's just strong enough. Or just big enough. Yeah. Because um, outside, outside, outside of very, very favorable circumstances, it doesn't no matter how well trained you are. If there are 30 of you and 600 of the other guy, you're dead. I mean, it's not exactly like, um, and particularly any of the. Somali militias are, you know, noted for being incredible tactical, well-supplied tactical units. Um, but when you had the whole issue that famously got turned into the film Black Hawk Down, um, those, yeah, Mogadishu, those were some of the U.S. Armed Forces' best trained forces. And uh, well, it turns out having lots and lots of people randomly firing AKs will get you somewhere. And the point is, I, I think for politicians, especially, it's an attractive thing to use smaller, more elite, more this, 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 this force until they get wiped out. Yeah, but of course, it's not the politicians who get wiped out, so they don't care. Um, the, the, I, I think the thing is, in and of itself, it's not a bad idea. Um, it could have a lot of utility, especially for building UK soft power. However, um, this kind of role, to me, it fills the same kind of niche as the gunboat and the third-class cruiser in the late 19th century. Yes, A, they are Royal Navy vessels, um, but they are there to maintain order. They're there to help out where necessary. They're there to keep people safe. They're there to conduct limited operations, um, both in terms of assistance and security. They are not meant to be anywhere near the front lines. And what they are doing is they're basically freeing up time, space, and whole life running from the front line ship for the front line ships to use in more pointed areas. Now, used in that role, and then in the event of a serious conflict, used as a hospital vessel well behind the front lines she'd do very well. The problem is basically what you enunciated, that if she works out in that role, some 
you know, two brain cell moron in the Houses of Parliament might turn around and go, oh, well, you know what, what we can actually do is we can have two or three more of those and then we don't need Albion and Bulwark and then we can just use those in frontline duties and that's when you end up with hundreds of people dead because they just get sunk. Yep. And the thing is, it's like the, uh, the amount of times people turn around and go, well, Royal Marines, they're light, a light infantry force. And I go, do you realise how many vehicles they actually bring with them? Yeah, we're not the US Marines. We don't have tanks and so forth. But then again, the Although US... Although occasionally Mar- some Charlies do turn up thanks to the army and do get attached yeah. and integrated into the brigade. But they're the very welcome that- when they do turn up. The thing is, you've got to remember the U.S. Marines are something of an aberration in the world of Marine infantry. Mm. Um, they are apart from any, apart from anything, the U.S. Marine Corps is larger than a good chunk of the world's standing national armies. Um, and up until very recently, they were equipped as such. They were basically just they, they were an army that happened to live at sea. Mm. They had their own air support. You know, U.S. Marine Corps squadron still around. They had their own tanks. They had their own APCs. Um, obviously, a lot of it fla- sort of flavoured towards the amphibious role, but they they had the full spectrum: artillery, helicopters. Now, granted, some of that is being somewhat downgraded. Um, I don't think they've got their heavy tanks anymore. But no, they let the tanks go. But they've got ve- uh, vehicles which have enough anti-tank missiles yeah. that you still don't want to get too close yeah. to them. But there is a difference between a marine infantry force that isn't the full-fledged army, um, which is what the US Marine Corps is being now, and then a marine force which is an elite special force with a decent amount of equipment to back it up that can be fitted on ships, which is what the Royal Marines and various other marine units are. And then there's expecting them to be supermen with guns, which appears to be the way that a lot of the politicians are going it's the, it's the same classic thing as we've mentioned before both in military circles and in a lot of just regular commercial circles and public sector circles of you know we don't want to pay for the capability therefore we're just going to art we're going to make so you, we're going to make you do the job for the same or less money but more work now in the civilian world that just leads to either people getting fed up and quitting or burnout um, but uh, the, you, those don't tend to work too well in full spec combat environments. So yeah, as I say, and they don't tend to work too well with combat forces, which are built around a can-do attitude. Mm. So yeah, if you as I say, if you're going to use, if they're going to use Argus as your effectively your third class cruiser equivalent for the modern era, great. If you're going to use it to try and replace Albion and Bulwark as a proof of concept, um. Well, better just abandon the idea of amphibious warfare for the UK, then. Fine, in which case, when we're replacing Albin and Bulwark instead, put the money towards a third aircraft carrier and go full down the full carrier battle group with the full spectrum mm-hmm. escorts. And that's the other thing I'm worried about. This it's going to sound strange, but the literal strike group, every time they're talking about it, they're talking about the, uh, they might have this ship nearby, they might have this ship, they're all going to be multi hatted. So, yeah, will they actually have... Uh, the thing is, she goes, oh, don't worry, the troops will be, might be deployed ashore, but there'll be a Type 26 or something sitting offshore which will have missiles which can come provide them with the equivalent of artillery support or the deck Actually, gun. that's a very good point, because if you're in a 
full-fledged shooting war, in theory, you should have at least one carrier battle group in the area. But given the small number of other vessels we have to hand, if you've got a carrier battle group that's got, say, a couple of Type 45s and three or four Type 26s running escort on it, which is kind of your minimum viable product yeah. for a carrier battle group, that's basically all you get, all of your available high-tier surface combatants. Because you're not going to have more than two or three Type 45s there and ready to go in instantly at any one time. You're probably not going to have more than four to six Type 26s in the same boat. You might have two or three and probably two type 45s and maybe another three or four type 26s you could surge a few weeks down the line but for your opening stages of the engagement we it's theoretically be a case of once the 26 is ones are available yeah that's not something you want to be serving as the primary escort um at the, at the moment the way the uk forces are configured we could once the, the 26s are in the water and walked up to spec you can probably put together a decent carrier battle group out of Especially the Royal they're Navy. currently planning on building just eight Type mm. Twenty Sixes. But you're you're not putting you're not putting anything else in the water at the same time. Um, you can you what? can swell the escort a little bit with your thirty ones and thirty twos, and stick another ship in that formation. But you ain't running two full fledged peer to peer combat formations with the current strength of the Royal Navy. Not unless you like losing ships. Why do I have a fear? Why do I have a slight worry that somehow that this is going to end up as a scenario where Argus is protected by a Type Thirty One called Campbelltown, and issues are going to happen? Well, is it an well, overactive imagination or the lack of sleep? Um, or is it cynicism in me? The degree of cynicism depends on the level of trust you have in the future defense minister and prime minister. <clears throat> at which point I'm probably so, at which point I probably, whatever political persuasion they come from, given the current crop of UK politicians, my cynicism would probably become so sharp and bitter, you could probably make <laughs> a, a knife out of it and call it the lemonizer. Uh... Yeah. That's pretty much what I'm looking at, and I'm thinking it's not going to be good. No. Something's going mean, to happen. Consider if you want to look for the most recent parallel to this kind of thing, where fortunately the bullet was dodged. You don't have to look too far back. Look at the Falklands. Yes. Um, in their infinite wisdom, the politicians of the time were going to sell off Invincible and a bunch of our of escorts. And all of that was on the books. So what would have happened if the Argentinians had invaded in 83 instead of 82? Well, the Argentinians would have probably been a lot, uh, actually could have been successful and would probably have been feeling a lot smarter right now. Mm. Um, it's one of those always things, you, you know. The, uh, well, and just... the fact we've run down the reserve fleet, so unlike uh, the Falklands, mm. we don't even have them to nick stuff from. Oh, good lord, no. We have no reserve. And reserve, to be fair, during the Falklands War, we didn't just nick from the reserve fleet, we nicked from museums as well. Mm. I'm fairly sure components of HMS Belfast got borrowed. I mean, to be fair, if Belfast had still been operational, her, um, her four-inch AA and 40 mils probably would have contributed substantially to the 
defensive. Michael Clapp would have had her in San Carlos as his flagship and would have been using those 40 millimeters to secure San Carlos because they'd have been better than anything else he had. Hmm. It would have been a case of probably someone like uh, uh, various people going, oh, no, 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 she should be at sea or this position, that position, and Michael Clapp would be just jumping on her and going, I'm a Commodore, you will take me into San Carlos, Spain now. <laughs> I'm in charge. Mind you, at the same time, that could have had to date some dangerous precedents because if they'd had uh, a working Belfast around... Statistically, the odds of someone relatively senior in that task force sticking a flag on her and going chasing after the Belgrano telling the Conqueror to back off. Relatively high. That's why you give her to Michael Clapp in the time. Mm, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just don't let HMS Brilliant within transfer range of her, otherwise <laughs> Captain Coward would have been aboard her and sailing south as fast as the turbines could carry her. <laughs> Given that the guy's plan, the guy, the guy was had a plan to mob Belgrada with four point five inch armed frigates. It, it it could have worked. He had his cop, oh, he had his surface action group ready and raring to go. All credit to him. The, the 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 man the man deserves a lot more recognition for what he got up to in the Falklands than he gets. But he was yeah, Captain, <laughs> the hilariously inappropriately named Captain Coward was a a, a through and through traditional Royal Navy officer. He didn't know the meaning. He didn't know the meanings of the words failure, danger, or shouldn't be done. <laughs> His attitude was: there is an enemy. These are the tools I have on hand to kill. Kill it. It will suffice. And yes. if it doesn't suffice, I'm not going to be around to know about it. So I don't care. <laughs> he would have fitted in well with the tribal captains in World War Two. Mm-hmm. Whether the German Navy would have liked the combination of Coward and Vian in a car working alongside each mm. other at any point, <laughs> we'll leave to another matter. Uh, mind you, that's possibly a, po a point for a, a future Bilge Pumps episode. We can have a list of hilariously dash inappropriately named naval officers and, and what they could have accomplished if you put them all together. Considering that you have um, that the, you have a few others like that in the Royal Navy, including the one that um, at least I think at least a good chunk of the viewers actually on my channel thought I'd made up at first. Um, Manly a, Powers, a, yeah, Captain Manly Power, which is just yep. <laughs> that is such a brilliant name. <laughs> and of course, they put him in destroyers, <laughs> and then he turns out to be not the baddest of the bunch. No, no, but that's because in being the maddest in destroyers in the Royal Navy in the in World War Two was a very, very high bar. Mm. You could have been the maddest in, you know, in the in any in the U.S. Navy's destroyers. That's a slightly lower bar. Not the. It's still quite high, but it's just a slightly lower bar. They're not quite reached the level of insanity the Royal Navy destroyer commanders reached. This is no discredit to the average. Mm. It just it just suggests that as an average, you try more to screen out your complete and utter nutters. <laughs> no, I think the thing is, in the US, when they have people like Captain Evans, they 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 do tend to occasionally select destroyer commanders for aggressiveness, mm -hmm. but they try and screen out the absolute lunatics. In the Royal Navy, they put the aggressive commanders in the cruisers and they reserve the lunatics for the destroyers. <laughs> the Royal Navy has a very, very special place for madmen. If we didn't, imagine where the Royal Navy would be these days. <laughs> oh, good Lord. 
they still do occasionally go select a few of them. Mm. Um, Um, Speaking of the Royal Navy in World War II and a position that they were in, um, somewhere they might end up again relatively soon was Australia. Oh, yes, of course. They are deploying. Now, there is the debate as to to which boats they're actually sending. Um, I I know some people think we're going to start handing over A-Class, but I doubt we're going to be that generous, although they have a picture of an A-Class in the Financial Review, an astute, Um, uh, which is, I think... I'm not sure oh, which one of the papers going, but basically, the odds are the Royal Navy is going to be sending some T-class boats to Australia to help them learn how to operate submarines, and those are probably sensible boats to go because we have a couple which are pottering around which are quite decent. They well, were I can see them sending both, to be honest, because um, when they're mentioning about boosting Royal Navy numbers in the Pacific and operating out of Australian ports, you have, you kind of have a, a two, two things. You have one, obviously the Australian need to get people trained up on nuclear powered submarines mm. before they get nuclear powered submarines of their own, because otherwise there'll be a bit of a capability gap. But um, secondly, is the fact that if, if in fact we are paying more attention to the Southwest Pacific, it's also a nice area to base from to you know do actual full-on missions. And if they're talking about, as the article seems to suggest, having Australian sailors crewing with the Royal Navy sailors aboard the subs, then having a Trafalgar or two running around in Australia, in and around Australian waters as more of a training vessel, that makes a degree of sense. Um, Mm. You can have a higher percentage of Australian crew aboard, so you can get more people trained faster. But at the same time, um, having an astute or two based down there also makes a degree of sense, because then you can go wandering off slightly further north and get up to some very interesting things, which no one will hear about for the next 50 to 60 years, at least. Um, and yeah, you can have a you'd obviously therefore have a slightly smaller cadre of Australian sailors aboard, but it would actually provide a relatively useful not only a useful capability for the Royal Navy to go poking around areas that might be operating in further down the line, but it would also provide an interesting two tier system for the Australian Navy to train on so that you can get a bunch of people who say, right, you lot, you know, um, you'll want to be future nuclear boat crew. Right, we're going to stick you in this T class, and you're going to go circumnavigate Australia, go and watch some whales in the Antarctic or something. Um, and then at the end of that, they can go, okay, right, this lot maybe maybe we don't want them to carry this particular bit of training for, transfer them to another part of the navy. This other lot, you've done relatively well, but uh, maybe we're going to shift you around on the T class, and you might do better in a different position send you around on, a, on another cruise and the cream of the crop you go right you're now being transferred to the astutes and you're go- or to the astute and you're going to be um sailing off to a destination officially unknown uh, for some li- a little bit more hands-on experience that will sound sensible hmm 
And I mean, Trenchant and Talent only went out of service uh, a couple of months ago, two, three months ago. Yeah. Uh, now, granted, obviously, Torbay, Tyler, Stoven and Trafalgar, they've all been out for a while. So I'm not counting on any of those. Triumph is still in service. Um, no particular word on when I don't think... Um, because she's being, I think she's being refitted at the moment. Um, so she's around for at least a couple more years. But um, yeah, trenchant and and or talent and or triumph. Any one of those, they only need the one. Um, could be moved on down there. Although, if you remember what we said, if we could, they could get two down there, then they're in a better position. Well, I'm thinking about pairing them. So you send an astute and one of these, or maybe you send two. Maybe you send Triumph down there as the refitted training craft, yeah. and you send Talent or Trenchant down there on what's effectively a one-way mission as a moored school. So they just, they just sail one more time, sail into port, tie up on the dockside, and they just act as a, a, a working reactor and submarine environment. Yeah. That would seem sensible to me. Mm. Because they, it, it's, they're going to need it to boot. But it's also, to me, starting to look like it's more and more a case of if the Australians need to buy these ships and need to buy the boats, subs... Uh, especially the first couple, then they're probably going to be having to buy them from the UK. Because we'll, we have got the spare capacity to build some, because unlike the Americans, our politicians are not going, hang on, we need more submarines, scram, build everything as quickly as you can. Which in and of itself you could say is a weakness, because um, who wouldn't want a, a bat, another batch of astutes built? But um, at the same time, as I said, yes, it does... It does open up a few um, possibilities because I think we worked out before on on here that there at one point was something like five, possibly more, um, nuclear-powered submarines under construction. Yeah. And now, as of as of, obviously information continues to update because time moves on um but as of now anson was launched last year so we have agamemnon and agincourt currently under construction mm. and we have dreadnought and valiant currently also theoretically under construction those being the dreadnought ssbns um so at that point, uh, War Spite has not yet started. And I'm just trying to look back and calculate again. So Dreadnought's been under construction since 2016. Um, one, two, five. Yeah, so we had five under construction then. Four, five. 2019 was Valiant. Yeah, so basically it looks like the maximum capacity of Barrow and Furnace is five. And we've currently got 
four under construction, of which Agamemnon is probably due to launch fairly soon, which would take us down to three. Then Warsaw would bring us up to four. So we actually do, do still have a, a slot available, considering mm. that they they appear to have a three-year gap between dreadnoughts being laid down. So in theory, Warspite would be laid down this year and King George VI would be laid down in, what, 2025? By which point Agincourt will be out in the water. So with Agamemnon and Agincourt out in the water, then, yeah, we'd still have four, assuming that dreadnought hasn't been launched yet. Um so yeah, we 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 theoretically are running at a one boat capacity. If they happen to want to take that up. And it would be sensible. It would give them some boats as quick as they're gonna get them. Hmm. Unless they expand Barrow and Furnace, of course. Oh, Barrow and Furnace. Now that's an interesting space to look at for expansion. <laughs> oh, seriously, they need to do so much work up there. We'll leave that to one side. That's it. That's getting onto your and my infrastructure rant. Yeah. Honestly, well, they, they, we can't turn a, into another infrastructure rant. There is a bit of space over on the um, right-hand side of the building if you're looking at it from the slipway side. Yeah, a little bit of space. I agree. It's kind of like the people who keep looking at the plans for where the Type 26 is being built and going, well, is this going to make them large enough for the Type 83? And there's you're in my plan for the Type 83, which no, it won't make it big enough for. Um, but the thing is, the Type 83, no one's yet said how big it's going to be or what it's going to be in terms of size. And I was... Honestly, the odds are it won't. The, honestly, the odds are it makes it look big enough to actually go for potentially the largest version of Type 26, should we wish to upgrade to it. But seeing as we built three Type 26s, which are the small, the, the smallest hull of the options, hmm. and to suddenly, uh, the, for the British government to suddenly go, right, the next five are going to be the largest hull option of the Type 26 design, would be unusually clear-eyed and sensible. And if they could yeah. say six or next nine, that would be even better. Or I suppose they could go three small, five medium, and then four largest. Yeah, because having six different hull types in our surface combatants, major surface combatants can't possibly go wrong. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of normal, though, for the British government, isn't it? That doesn't just that doesn't make it any better. <laughs> oh, right. Oh, well. oh uh, there, I think there's just one one more thing to there is one more topic to talk about before we we head off and try and recover from the ridiculous temperatures um, that we faced earlier. And yes, I know some some of our American listeners are probably and others are probably laughing at the fact that. 38 to 40 degree weather i.e just over 100 fahrenheit seems to have been enough to bring half the country to its knees but as we've said before where that britain is not designed common, for this 
like Vegas, you're built for it. We are. And the, the example I would give is this. The paint I was painting my office with inside, it was too hot for it to dry. How in the world have we got to a state where he, it could be too hot for paint to dry? Hmm. What kind of paint am I painting with? That's the other question I want to ask. So, topic. Topic. Lasers. Ah, yes. This was your so, one. Yes. This, so, the topic of lasers as a whole went a little bit dead for quite a while. Mm -hmm. Um there were various um, laser efforts that seemed to start and then stop and start and stop and proofs of concept. And it kind of all just went away a little bit. Um, now, granted, this is not a laser on the scale of some of the kind of let's replace our main gun with it, directed energy weapons that the US and possibly China were working on. Um, but this one is called Dragonfire because never let it be said that we can't name things well. And this is, as you might therefore guess, a UK-based um, system. And we've got Skynet, we've got Dragonfire, we've got Brimstone. We're really going on a theme here. Um, so it, it, it has apparently um, got tracking down pretty well, mm -hmm. um, and it's now ready for a high-power test. So, I mean, tracking has always been one of the problems with lasers because yes it's it is kind of a point and click interface it's literally a speed of light weapon um but it unlike a uh 20 30 40 millimeter gun or any kind of gun firing proximity fuse shells um it doesn't have that slight randomness built in where if you just chuck a bunch of shells down range in approximately the right direction they kind of spread out and cover an area wherein hopefully the target is um it is quite literally the case if you fire your laser and it's two meters off you miss and you'll continue missing no matter how much power you pump down range um so you have to have the accuracy down pat first i think and this seems to be where dragonfire has gotten itself up to um they're also using a uh a apparently a fate what they call a phased lock beam um which i can guarantee you at some point someone's going to turn into a phaser just because um in, at least in terms of designation but um it so far appears to be being tested at, at, as kind of a ciws replacement or complement system but apparently one of the properties of these phased lock beams is they're actually quite effective because they concentrate more of their energy in the center of the uh, collimation zone. So hopefully it might work out. Um, a lot of the stuff that's coming through about it seems to be emphasizing the fact that the UK wants to have its own sovereign um, laser system rather than being um, subject to having to import anybody else's. Which... Is it a legacy of the pre-World War One era? Because if you remember, in the pre-World War One era, Britain had a problem in that we had all our fuses came from Germany, and they were very good fuses mm. for shells, and they worked really well. But the trouble was they all came from Germany. 
And then we ended up in a war scenario versus them, and we had to develop our own fuses, and they weren't so good. You know, so now, they stopped selling them in the late 1900s. Um, yes. But terrible. Now, I, I have a feeling it's actually a more recent thing than that. Because, I mean, well, you look throughout the Cold War, we've had this kind of stop, start, stop, start affair with purchasing um, weapons from overseas, whether that be actually buying the F4 attempting to and then not buying the f-111 uh we picked up the sidewinder cool the sparrow have. um all of those obviously being american systems uh we've then gone and picked up is it aim 132 um yeah, the sidewinder exactly. replacement um and but that's obviously from uh, from europe meteor is mostly british but is also is still a joint european project um and of course, the F thirty five is a joint US UK project. Um, now, so we, we've had this kind of weird back and forth between collaborating multinationally, which has given us things like Typhoon and Tornado, um, buying straight up buying from overseas, then potentially modifying. That's how we got Skyflash um, derived from the M seven, and you know everything and. and then uh, developing occasionally your own in-house stuff as well. The fact that they're being so particularly picky about this particular type of weapon, given that it is a frontline, cutting-edge technology type thing, I have a feeling that's actually more a holdover of the 2010s. Because for those people who are unaware, um, the F-35 is not a purely American fighter. It was developed with an awful lot of input from British Aerospace as well. And part of the deal to for the British to offer their expertise was that they would be the only so-called tier one partner. They would be the only people with access to the F-35 source code. They would be the only people who would be able to maintain, modify, and upgrade their F-35s independent of whatever the Americans wanted to do with theirs or whatever the Americans didn't want other people to do with their F-35s. Everybody else would be dependent on the US to a fairly significant degree for spare parts and maintenance. And then with a change of government, the US government turns around and arbitrarily tried to lock out the UK from that. And there was a big kerfuffle and argument over it. And it's never been entirely clear to me, looking at the various publicly available sources, exactly where that went, um, whether they, the American, whether the US Congress was successful at locking the British out of uh, the F-35s, whether that was smoothed over, um, or whether officially we're locked out, but unofficially there's so many people who worked on the development, we can basically bypass it, um, or something in between. But the very fact all that it happened above. at all... Yeah, all the, all the, above. the very fact that it happened at all, where despite having a written agreement, so an ally ostensibly as trusted as the Americans could just turn around and go, actually, no, we're not letting you have access to the system anymore. Uh, and with ITAR still very definitely a thing. I have a distinct feeling that nowadays when it comes to frontline um, top tier combatant systems, the UK is going, no, actually, we're going to have this completely sovereign or if we're going into a partnership we are the senior partner 
And that's how it's going to be from now on. Because you look at Challenger 3, that system is basically made up of entirely UK-derived parts or parts from where the UK holds the upper hand in the negotiations. Um, obviously, Dragonfire is a UK sovereign-based system. And even most recently with Tempest, the um, successor to Typhoon and potentially the successor to F-35, that's been a UK-only system for quite a while. Mm-hmm. And now they've announced a merger of programs with Japan. Um, but I have a feeling that Japan and the UK are going to be coming at that deal from a much more equal footing than the US and the UK ever were on with the F-35. And I have to say, this does have some other problems for certain people, because you have always got the discussion in the UK of potential Scottish independence, which is also in the news at the moment because of the Supreme Court is going to actually discuss uh, various issues on it. Britain has very publicly several times pointed out that they, we have a policy of we do not build ships, we do not build those things abroad. Now, there are some tankers built in Korea, fitted out in the UK, but that's because none of the yards in the UK bid for the job. I don't see Type 26, Type 31 getting built in Scotland if Scotland's independent of the rest of the UK. Uh, especially if you consider the work that's being done at Appledore right now, that would seem to make them viable for possibly taking over the Type 31 project if they needed to. And there are other yards which could possibly step in for the Type 26. The most difficult thing for the British, though, is not those two things. It's, well, it's moving the um, the ter- strategic deterrent if we had to move it, which probably we would. Mm-hmm. And it's where would we berth the Queen Elizabeth class for their maintenance and their dry docking? But why am I saying all this? Because we are getting so passionate about building things in the UK, about it being UK-owned. It sets a line in the sand. And it's becoming a line which I think could be interesting to see how it affects things as things go on. I am looking at Ajax program and I'm wondering whether it's going to survive much longer, but I don't know what the options are to replace that. I think that's the problem is the object, the only way you could replace it is if you could find a similarly British program. Yeah, although buying CV90 is looking a better, better, better and better by the day. Oh, God, yes. Because, you know, it works. It actually works. Yes. Comes with a range of options. We could step in almost immediately if uh, we bought enough and be the senior partner. Hmm. Oh well, we shall see. Oh. We shall see what happens. Um, but yeah, yeah. It, it it is. It's an interesting world. I'm sure there'll be more interesting and new stuff um, waiting for us next week. Definitely. And thank you very much, everyone, for listening. And the one point I will say as we go away is, please do go and look up your favorite content creators on YouTube and all those other channels. If you don't think you've seen a video from the while, go check if they've produced, been producing a video and if you just haven't seen them. 
And make sure that YouTube hasn't unsubscribed you from them. Yes. Because it does like to do that. Mm. Thank you very much for listening. Take care and have a good week. See ya. Welcome to the Bilge Pumps, where a bunch of naval geeks spout off. <laughs>